Support for this episode comes from SAS. How is AI affecting how you learn, work, and socialize? And what do you need to know to make responsible use of it as a business leader, worker, and human in the world? Find out when you listen to Pondering AI, a podcast featuring candid conversations with experts from across the AI ecosystem. Pondering AI explores the impact and implications of AI for better and for worse with a diverse group of innovators, advocates, and data scientists. Check out Pondering AI wherever you get your podcasts. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, everyone, from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is the coronation with 100% less Queen Elizabeth. Oh. Just kidding. This is On with Kara Swisher, and I'm Kara Swisher. I do miss her. And I'm Naima Raza. How improper to make dead queen jokes, Kara. Yeah, it's time. It's time. It's time to make dead queen jokes. You're so British, and you're not British. I love the Brits. Unfortunately, I didn't get invited. There are fewer than 3,000 guests attending Mm -hmm. in the audience. Amongst those who RSVPD asked at the time we're taping this, Prince Harry. But his wife, Meghan, is not attending. Do we care? No. We do not. We do not care. We do not care. We did our British show when we were in London, and that's that. That's it. The British quota has has been met. Everyone's so fascinated by that marriage of of Meghan and Harry, Mm -hmm. besides Mm -hmm. us, Mm -hmm. and by public marriages in general. Mm -hmm. They are. I'm not as fascinated by marriages, but I always am fascinated when there's a divorce. Recently, I learned Kevin Costner got divorced, and and I'm I'm like, I didn't even know he was married, but I want to know now why he got divorced, which is none of my business. Yeah, that's been a big thing. It's either the marriages and romance of, like, gossip things, and they Mm -hmm. go through that, and then it's the disaster of the divorce. Yeah, people are fascinated by the breakup. Yes, the breakup. The breakup. And it's relevant to our topic today because we have a guest, Maggie Smith, the Mm -hmm. poet, who has opened up her own life Mm -hmm. through a new book that we'll get to shortly. But what do you think? You've been married. And divorced. uh, And divorced and married again. Yeah. What do you think makes marriage successful? I have no idea. I can't say I'm particularly good (laughs) at it. Obviously not the first time. Um, You know, I think I I don't give people marriage Mm -hmm. advice. I do give them divorce advice. If you're not happy or unhappy, usually it's not happy. There's a very Mm -hmm. big difference. You should do something about it because life is short. And, you know, you try your hardest to behave correctly and to do the right thing. You don't always succeed at that. I've had a pretty good relationship with my ex-wife. Sometimes not. Sometimes You guys have a great—I mean, I've been in your homes for dinners with—I'm like, lesbians are so evolved. Yeah, we do. You know, we try really hard. We don't agree Your mother stays at her house. Yes, yes, it's true. We do a lot of stuff. But, you know, gay people just started to be able to get married. Now we get to be divorced. But marriage is hard, and especially after children, it's hard. It's hard to do. I think seeing how hard marriage is and Mm -hmm. seeing marriages collapse, for single people or for people who are not yet married, even if you're in a relationship, the question is, well, should I marry this person? How do you know when? And I just did a piece with Esther Perel on this. Like, How do you know when to lock it in? It puts such a high bar on that decision. I don't know. I think you. That? Yes. No. Well, you, you you basically break up with people all the time. That's my impression. I do. Of I'm into the breakup. You break, but you do the breakup, which is really an interesting development. Because why? I don't know. It just is. A lot of women don't break up as much as you do. You're like, nah, I don't like him. I don't like him. Um, you know, there's there's a really there was a really good Saturday Night Live 
called, mm-hmm. uh, it was a, an app called Settler. Uh-huh. Uh, this is dating for people who want to settle. <laughs> Finally, wants to settle. Like it was really funny. It was like a little too on the on the nose. Um, I was introduced. I went on a blind date with Amanda, mm-hmm. um, set up by Candy Fight, Lydia Polgreen's wife. Yes. And she was fantastic. She's responsible for these children now, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, within a year, you guys were, yes. were starting well, to get pregnant. Well, she said, I have her. two yeah. people to set you up with, and I had not been single my whole life. And mm-hmm. I had just broken up with someone, and I'm like, I'm going to be single a year. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to finally, like, literally since seventh grade. And so I said, all right, I'll go out on this date. And she said she had two people, mm-hmm. and Amanda was the first one. And who was the second? I, I, I'm not going to say, but <laughs> I great. know who the someone second is. Great. So I want you to tell. <laughs> so, no, I'm not going to. It, someone great. Uh, <laughs> yes. And um, we met, and that was that. That was that. I just yeah. knew she was just. She made me laugh. I guess she's funny, smart, beautiful. Um, she just made me laugh. I think that's the most important thing to mm-hmm. me. And I, you don't know why. And I really, literally wanted to be single. I had this single lady house in D.C. I was like, ooh, I'm single lady. Sorry, nobody has a single lady it was a house single lady in D.C., Karen. <laughs> no, it was I've like a bachelor lady house. It was a lovely little house. Yeah. For me, it was like I'm single and I'm gonna ready to mingle, I you guess. make it sound and, like a bachelor pad with no, like a hot a tub in the middle. Pad. There was a hot tub. <laughs> there was a hot there tub. Was a hot there tub. was a hot tub. Louis hot tub. Louis hot tub. But, you know, it's harder, especially when you have kids, mm-hmm. to introduce you know, someone new and stuff like yes. that. My kids were older at that by that point, so it yeah. wasn't. I didn't really want it to take all their opinions into account. Yeah, but it, it worked out really well. I don't think as much as you do. I just go. I don't think. I just break up. You just break. <laughs> you really do thoughtlessly break up. Yeah, that's. I don't me. know if you're thoughtless about no, it. No, I'm not thoughtless about yeah. it. I just think you don't need to be married. I can see why you wouldn't. I could see yeah. why you wouldn't. I, I think when you have kids, I do think. It's easier when you yes, are, I, I wouldn't are not a single alone. mom. I think I think there are w- wonderful mm-hmm. single moms. Scott's, for example, been raised by a single mom. Mm-hmm. But I think the level of difficulty is high. Yes, high. very high. Well, our guest today has been very open about her marriage. And she shot to fame for her 2016 poem, Good Bones. Great poem, by the Great way. Great poem, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're a big fan. Mm-hmm. Um, the poem became what Slate called a, quote, mantra of hope in hard times. So do you mind to just read a bit of the poem so people know what we're talking about? I'm going to read the whole poem because she writes short poems. And she talks about this in the book and in the interview. She writes very short. Mm -hmm. Life is short, though I keep this from my children. Life is short. I've shortened mine in a thousand delicious, ill-advised ways, a thousand deliciously ill-advised ways I'll keep from my children. The world is at least 50% terrible, and that's conservative estimate, though I keep this from my children. For every bird, there is a stone thrown at a bird. For every loved child, a child broken, bagged, sunk in a lake. Life is short, and the world is at least half terrible, and for every kind stranger, there is one who would break you. Though I keep this from my children, I am trying to sell them the world. Any decent realtor walking you through a real shithole chirps on about good bones. This place could be beautiful, right? You could make this place beautiful. This is a great poem. This says a lot about the times we're in, too. Mm-hmm. And about children, the difficulty of, of saying difficult things to kids. And keeping the world bright for them. Right. And mm-hmm. at the same time, knowing it's not. And you have mm-hmm. to teach them that it's also not. I, you know, you have yeah. those discussions with your kids when you're older. Anyway, this poem went completely viral. Completely viral. Meryl mm-hmm. Streep read it at Lincoln mm-hmm. Center. Yeah. But you read it at the end of our episode with Sam Altman just mm-hmm. months ago, and we were talking about the hard times of mm-hmm. AI mm-hmm. and hope in a time of AI. Yeah. She's a beautiful prose writer, too, and um, you can see that by the poetry. Um, she's very easy to read, but also complex um, and really gets to the heart of things. And she really exposed herself in this book, uh, a marriage that went completely wrong in lots of ways. Yeah, because the poem, ironically, which made her successful. Yeah. I don't think the poem was to blame, but... The poem's fault. I th- part of me thinks she was a successful poet and he was not. But the poem changed the balance of her relationship because yes. she went from being a 
a person who had kind of pulled back from work and was freelancing mm-hmm. to raise children to all of a sudden, you know, having a lot of interest in her right. and wanting to work more and having mm-hmm. the opportunity, book deals, et cetera. And that changed the configuration of her marriage. Sure. There was infidelity. Her her husband mm-hmm. cheated on her, which she writes about in this book. And she ended up divorcing and then writing a couple of books, Keep Moving, which was kind mm-hmm. of a self-help book in 2020. And this most recent book called Drawing from the Poem, You Could Make This Place Beautiful. Mm-hmm. How did the book land with you? Beautifully. I thought it was really well done. I, I, I liked how she did it. She did some pages were just a single word mm-hmm. or just a sentence or things like that. We've interviewed a bunch of people like Brene Brown or Glennon Doyle. You know, it's in that genre, I guess I would say, because when I went to the reading in Washington, it was full of women. Like mm-hmm. it was not, there weren't a ton of men there, I'll yeah. tell you. Um, <laughs> so she aims at sort of women who are, you know, working and struggling with kids and mm-hmm. the, the different compromises you make, um, especially straight women. And they, it really resonated with them. And anyone who has got a struggle and juggle has that issue. And then when she started talking about you know, look up and see if your husband's the person you want to be with. Like half the crowd was like, hmm. Like you'd hear a visible, <laughs> like, yeah, I'd rather be single. Because she's like, I love being single. And they're all like, oh, it's single being be good. single is fun. I know, but they all were. You could feel it. And Amanda oh. and I were like, whoa. It's like the straight ladies are really unhappy. Like, yeah. It was super funny. <laughs> I mean, not funny, but it was funny. So this is one where, Carrie, you you went rogue. I didn't go rogue. It's my show. Like, <laughs> you went rogue. rogue. It's, it's our show, I too. Get, yeah, I know, but I could, should be able to interview who I want. Yes, but I was a little more skeptical. Yes. I wasn't as familiar with her work and was more right. skeptical. You don't like touchy-feely, it's a tough. I, I love touchy-feely. I write like about touchy. this stuff. I write about dating. Yeah, and yet you don't. I only get to interview hard Please, white I'm men. the one. I remember when I wanted you to interview Brene Brown, and you were like, who's Brene Brown? Well, I did that for you, didn't I? So you, you should have just said, yes, Kara, I didn't please. know I was going to make a softie out of you. No, I'm not a softie. <laughs> I would like to be able to talk about my softer side of Kara. So that's yes, the way and it is. I'm very excited. And this is the thing when we we often disagree, but... When there is a disagreement, yes, unless there is a factually right answer editorially, we should do it. An indicator is that, yeah, it should be about passion. Yes, a hundred percent. We can interview all the all the masters of the universe we want, mm-hmm. but I do think when you do the smaller stories, I think they often resonate. I'm I'm often attracted to smaller stories that say a lot about a lot of things. And then this this book is about loneliness. It's about ambition. It's about uh, failing and f- trying to figure it out. It's about love in a lot of ways. I think that it's a very Western sure. world of marriage, 100%. right? 100%. So, like, for context, my parents had an arranged marriage. Right. They're married for 40 years my until my father passed away. My never asked if she was happy in her marriage. Yeah. But I never thought of it. were happy. They were happy. They were in love and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they were very loving to each other. I think one of the challenges, though, is that that world is different. The Western world, I think we live in, sure. you know, there's nuclear family. You have no extended family for support. Right. So yeah. you it puts a lot of burden on your marriage, mm-hmm. on your kids, on your work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're very individuated. Yeah. So there isn't as much shared identity. It's disdainful for her success rather than encouraging of it. Yeah. But, you know, you get the sense that he... He could have been nicer about her success. He was more successful financially. He was a lawyer. But and that's different. she was He's more successful creatively. Yeah. yeah. He's just a lawyer. I'm sorry, but <laughs> he wanted to be a writer, and he couldn't, so he was a lawyer. So Yeah. And ultimately, she's writing about her marriage, right? And we can all see ourselves in that in different ways. You know, the stories are not similar to a lot of people. And that life is very resonant for many people. And do you know what it's not about? It's not fucking about? about Elon Musk. Oh, thank God. This thank is the God. one episode. <laughs> That's one of the things. About There's Elon not a Musk. fucking bit of Elon Musk, except right now. Yes. 
Well, let's take a quick break, and when we're back, we'll make this place beautiful with Maggie Smith. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power the collaboration for teams to accomplish what could otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or 2 million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR, and legal, can stay connected and moving together as one towards shared company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Support for On With Kara Swisher comes from Greenlight. Look, if you're anything like me, then I'm confident you wanted to make a really dumb purchase back in the day. Maybe you thought that boombox you got would last a lifetime or just wanted way too many high-waisted jeans. We've all been there. You live, you learn. But if you're a parent, you want to be able to pass those financial lessons you learned onto your kids in a way that sticks. That's where Greenlight Card comes in. It can help your kids actually learn how to make smart financial decisions at an early age. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. You can send your kids instant money transfers, get real-time notifications on spending, manage chores, and automate allowance. I think it's important for kids to understand how to get on a good path for financial success and what spending means and where the money's coming from. And one of the things that's important is to teach them how to manage money from an early age. And the Greenlight app also comes with games that teach them money skills in a fun, memorable way. So stop putting off the money talk and start putting your kids on the right path. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash Kara. That's greenlight.com slash Kara to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash Kara. Welcome, Maggie Smith. I'm a huge fan of your work for many years now. Um, I'm a secret poetry fan. People are always surprised. Uh, but I find it very comforting to read poetry most of the time. Actually, that that makes me like you even more. Now that I know you're a secret, you're one of my people. Secretly, you're one of my people. Now, you have a new memoir out called You Could Make This Place Beautiful, which is a line in probably your most famous poem. I'd love to know why you decided to do a memoir over a poem, given you're better known as a poet. Yeah. I mean, I honestly hope every idea that comes to me complies and agrees to be not just a poem, but one of my poems, by which I mean it's probably going to be fairly concise and condensed and distilled. Right. And I could not do that kind of narrative work or processing or thinking back or reckoning with the past or bringing in a bunch of outside stories mm-hmm. or, frankly, letting my gallows sense of humor mm-hmm. um, very in, funny. Yeah, into both. it. Yeah. Um, and so, I, yeah, it was not going to be a poem but I had a series. I know. I had a take. I was like, I was like, why didn't she write this? I'm like, oh, she needs more words. 
She needs yeah. more words. Real estate. Yeah, it's real, real estate. estate. You needed real real estate. Um, although there's plenty of poems where you reference this and you have the sort of the foreshadowing that you do a lot. But let's talk about the memoir itself overall first. Um, I think it's talking about losing and finding a narrative in one's life. And it, you actually referenced your marriage very early in one of the poems that you quote, which is, we knew eventually we would want different things and then we wanted them, which I thought was a devastating line. <laughs> I know what that feels like. Um, So talk a little bit about that idea of losing and finding your narrative. Yeah, it's funny how if if we were reading a novel... Mm-hmm. Or watching a movie, I think we we're we're smart enough as um, people who take in lots of culture to notice foreshadowing when it's mm-hmm. presented to us mm-hmm. in the context of someone else's story. Right, and we are often not able to see foreshadowing when it's just an inch from our own noses. Mm-hmm. But I had the little seed of an idea that we might not always be traveling in the same direction. And Mm -hmm. as it turns out, sometimes the choices we make in our 20s don't hold. In our 40s... No, not at all. And I I think, honestly, that's okay. And I would not have said that four years ago. Mm -hmm. I would have said that was an absolute failure, and I can't believe this happened, Mm -hmm. and everything should have stayed, you know, sort of frozen in amber Mm -hmm. forever the way that it was, you know, quote-unquote supposed to be. And really through just sort of metabolizing the experience and writing this book and the finding, Mm -hmm. I was able to kind of see, no, I think this was always going to be the way this particular story turned out. And it could have taken different paths. Yeah, you talk about that, where it could have gone differently, where you make different decisions, which you don't see as the cracks start to create. I think you use the term cracks get bigger and bigger um, in the relationship. Yeah. I mean, I think most of us, especially by the time we hit midlife, and if there are children involved, and Mm -hmm. if people have multiple careers, and time is tough to come by, and, you know, communication becomes more and more transactional, particularly Mm -hmm. with parenting in the mix. 100%. You know, these little hairline cracks, like maybe one or two. It's like my old house and these old plaster walls, you know? One or two little cracks, and I can hang a piece of art over it. Mm-hmm. Not a metaphor. I'm literally doing it in my house. <laughs> but once those tiny cracks meet another tiny crack from another area of the wall, right. and it splits, that's when I have to call the contractor. And right. there is no marriage contractor. <laughs> that's not how it works. Right. Um, but when you were trying to get this idea of finding your narrative, in the course of the marriage, you lost it in some fashion. Yeah. And I think... That's not unusual. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that it's it's sort of, you know, well, let's bring talking heads into it. It's sort of the the David Byrne lyric, how did I get here? This is not my beautiful life. This is not my beautiful house. And I think a lot of us wake up in middle age in particular and start to kind of reckon and take stock of all the different choices and paths and opportunities we took and opportunities we didn't take that lead us to this place that we are in the moment. Um, Yeah. And what I found was that there were a lot of pieces of me that I had sort of snipped off and bargained away over time in order to be good. Mm Mm-hmm. And make it work. And what does that mean? Right, and make it work, 
Right. And you do talk about the choices because I, I had another, I have new young children. I have older children. And sometimes I look at the house and it's full of toys and I go, oh, and my wife looks at me and she goes, you picked this. And I'm like, you're right. I did. I did. Yeah, I remember I picked it. This is the deal. So you wrote a really great line here. Sometimes I feel like I titled this book Kittens and Rainbows, which is uh, it, which is true because uh, it's called um, You Could Make This Place Beautiful. And then wrote Hell, yeah. uh, it, which I thought was really funny. Yeah. I mean, the title is both a reclaiming of mm-hmm. a poem that I have ambivalent feelings about for lots of reasons, um, and bet. and a sort of directive, mm-hmm. mostly to me. And yet, you know, you could make this place beautiful doesn't preclude all of the the cracks in the plaster that need to be either fixed or or art needs to be purchased and mm-hmm. hung over it so a that we don't have to look at it. A lot of art. Yeah. So you do try to find the good part. There's another line you have is love is a perfect pit on my otherwise rotten fruit, which was kind of, wow, that's something else. Uh, I was thinking about my own divorce because many people who are straight mm-hmm. have that feeling of uh, of rotten fruit. In a lot of ways, I don't feel that way. We had a pretty mm-hmm. amicable divorce. I think gay people don't have all the imagery around marriage, that they, so they think it's all going to be kittens and rainbows ever because they never thought they would have it. I'm older. Um, and I remember it was only uh, straight couples who told me, you have to make it work. And I always would say, do we? actually do we? And it was a really interesting experience. I'd love you to talk about the idea of of this being devastating to you, because it comes through throughout the book that you thought this was going to be forever, and it certainly wasn't. Yeah. When my I shared the galley with my father, mm-hmm. and he texted me and said, I didn't realize how much pain you were in. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because I see my dad every week. Um, this isn't someone who lives across the country. We're having Sunday dinner, all of us, every Sunday. So, I mean, he's someone who watched me through the worst of it and still didn't know, which on one hand, it's like, well, I can congratulate myself that I seemed like right. I had it together. And not only now reading the book, do people see how little I slept and mm-hmm. and how much I, and, and all the fillings I cracked grinding my teeth. Um, yeah, but it was terrifying. It was terrifying. I mean, and I think this is very particular to, I think, the kind of relationship that I was in, which is I was the primary caregiver mm-hmm. and did not work full time for a mm-hmm. lot of the kids' young years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when we were divorced, had been self-employed for years, Mm -hmm. not in a way that was like incredibly lucrative. Right. So there's there's lots of devastation at the Mm -hmm. end of a marriage like that. One is, well, it's been 18, 19 years. How could this have happened? I thought you were my person. Mm -hmm. Um, And not only is the present now completely imploding, but now the future I've been counting on just went completely poof. Right. Uh, Talk about the idea that you sublimate yourself to someone in order to make it work. Is that a compromise that is, happens in all marriage, right? Or is it disappearing yourself, which I think you talk a lot about invisibility. And I think the line, I steaded, I love the word stet, so I mm. steaded my tears. You put them back in, in that piece that you talked about in the New York Times. Talk a little bit about this idea of folding your happiness. And sometimes that's the thing you need to do in a marriage, obviously. Yeah, I agree. I don't think, I mean, I don't think any marriage works if both people come in and say, this is me, take it or leave it, and mm-hmm. I'm not going to bend. Mm-hmm. I think that never really works. What I realized 
really only at the very end and then more in the rear view because I'm always able to see things a little clearly when I've had a little space mm-hmm. is that the things that I the things that I let myself get small about weren't small things. They were sort of essential things. And so if you feel like if you feel like your work is diminished, it feels like you are diminished. Mm-hmm. If you mm-hmm. feel like you're um, not able to sort of like take up space and claim the same kind of agency in your house as the other adult, mm-hmm. um, that's like it just it felt like an injustice. Right. Because in a lot of ways, what also comes through, and I think, uh, you know, you were both writers at the beginning of your relationship. You met in a writing class, a creative writing class. Um, he was jealous of your success, resentful that you traveled because he had to pick up the domestic uh, labor, which you normally did, and you were the sort of go-to person, um, which is a common experience for women, but a lot in a lot of relationships. Um Talk a little bit about this. I suspect he wasn't as good a writer as you, and that's just me saying that. But can you talk about uh, the jealousy your ex felt over your success? Yeah, I mean, I can only speak for myself, and he mm-hmm. never communicated in a clear, direct way. But since I can only speak for myself, the best I could do ethically in mm-hmm. this book was present what happened from my perspective and let the reader come to their own conclusions. Um, you know, I think... Part of it, too, is if you're used to having your spouse available mm-hmm. for doctor's appointments, child care, packing lunches, doing laundry, making sure everything, you know, quote unquote, mm-hmm. runs smoothly. If you are accustomed to that and then their career takes off in a way, whether it's writing, which maybe mm-hmm. pains you in a way that like if it had been pharmaceutical sales, requiring my travel, if it had been something lucrative and not creative, maybe it would have been slightly different and not a double mm-hmm. whammy because mm-hmm. it would have been inconvenient from a childcare perspective, but maybe not stingy in the way that maybe it was. Who really knows? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't, it's it's almost, I was saying to a friend the other day, if you're used to receiving from a person $100 a day for mm-hmm. years And then that person says, you know, I actually think I'd like to keep $40 Mm -hmm. and I'm going to start paying you $60 a day. The person could either be like, you know what? 60 is fine. You deserve Mm -hmm. the $40 and I will take the 60 and that is plenty for me. Or the person might be like, you know, I've been really used to receiving $100 a day from you and I like that and I would prefer it that way. It's, It's a common experience for women too to take over in general. Yeah, and I wanted it. Yes. And and to be I honest, I wouldn't up, yeah. do it any other way. And mm-hmm. knowing what I know now and looking back, I would not have done it any other way. Mm-hmm. You know, we all we all inherit this stuff too. So mm-hmm. I I mother in large part the way I was mothered. Yeah, you talk about this. You realize you're doing the same sort of domestic labor your mother did. Yep. I yeah. basically sort of copy pasted my parents' marriage Mm -hmm. and child raising into my own home, which in some ways doesn't make a lot of sense because we're really different people who had very different career trajectories. And yet I had a good, you know, quote unquote, good childhood. And that's what I saw that was modeled to me. And so some of this is inherited and, uh, and, uh, you know, some of this is 
we built this together. No one made me sign something on my wedding day that said, no matter what happens, you're the one who's going to take care of the kids. Right. But that often happens. One of the things I used to observe uh, with my friends who were straight is the women swooping in. The husbands Mm. would try to do something like change a diaper and not do it very well. Um, Or I was in a party and I was upstairs with all the husbands. I don't know. I was put up there, but the kids were playing (laughs) and one of the kids was heading towards my stairs and I just sat there. I'm like, how long is he going to figure out? I was going to, I was going to be there. I was standing there. So the kid couldn't have gone over and it, and the kid almost went over and I was like, wow, you really aren't paying attention. Like it was fascinating, but the, but I often also saw women swooping in and fixing it like, oh, you're not doing it right and diminishing a man's experience. So I always thought that was really interesting. Also, if you're used to the person who's doing it and everything is second nature to you, mm-hmm. sometimes it's also easier to do a thing yourself than it is to take the time to explain mm-hmm. the thing to someone mm-hmm. else. But mm-hmm. the problem of that is then you never get out from underneath having that on your list of tasks. That's right. 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 It's nobody else can do it but you and no one does right. it as well as you. Right. right. You become essential. And then mm-hmm. you basically become so essential that if you leave the building for two days, it's not okay. I just had my first daughter. She's almost four years old. I oh. think about it all the time. I have three sons, but just one daughter. And I do think about the same thing, even though you know, very strong female presence, a lot of power, et cetera. Um, Do women sharing these experiences lead to change from your perspective when you were thinking about writing this? Because you got a lot of reaction. Goodness, I hope so. I mean, I think about this too, like not only what are we modeling to our daughters, but what are we modeling to our sons about their expectations if they end up in a straight relationship with a woman? Like, will Mm -hmm. they be like, well, my mom did everything, so that's what I'm expecting from my partner. So I'm I'm really aware of that. Mm-hmm. Because this is memoir and and not, you know, self-help like Keep Moving was, I really wrote this book without focusing too much on sort of what quote unquote good it, it might do or what change it might affect. Right. I told someone early on my hope for the book is that someone will read it and feel seen, mm-hmm. which is a really simple ask and someone just the other day emailed me out of the blue using the email on my website because they read the excerpt in the cut and said, I feel seen. Just verbatim what I said, my hope was, for the book. So I thought, okay, so that that happened. People will see, if not a complete sort of echo or rhyme of their own experience in this book, they will see something, probably, that they can that they can, they can relate to, yeah. Well, well, one thing that was interesting, which I think you had a little hard time relating to, but then it sort of emerged over the course of the book, is your book has anger. Um, I love that. I'm always, I, I get angry very easily and express it very clearly. Um, uh, women aren't supposed to be angry, which is absurd. Women's anger scares men. You talked about that. Your, your anger scared him when you had just a tiny bit of it. Um, I want you to talk about the way, uh, in this book especially, how gender affects the way we process anger, whether it's our own or someone else's. Oh, my gosh. Well, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. If you're too angry, people call you angry and Mm -hmm. shrill, Mm -hmm. and that's not the way that women are supposed to be. And if you prioritize peace and say, you know, I'm not going to be angry, I'm going to kind of try to accept this, then you're Mm -hmm. weak and you should be angry. Mm -hmm. So it just honestly feels like as a woman, there's not a way to feel that isn't critiqued and policed as being unacceptable. Like really, we're just supposed to be quiet mm-hmm. um, and not have feelings. So um, talk about it in the context of this relationship, because there's one point when your husband realizes you're angry and has a problem with it. 
Yeah, I mean, of course I have been angry mm-hmm. um, and sad. Mm-hmm. And there have been times where I felt like I was angry as a way to protect myself from feeling deep sadness because it's easier for me to feel angry, which feels a little bit more surface, than to get at what's underneath that, which is hurt. Mm-hmm. Or a feeling of rejection or not being valued. or um, And there have been times where I've been so sad I haven't been able to tap into that sort of like righteous fury that probably mm-hmm. would have made me feel a little bit more motivated on that given day. And mm-hmm. so I really do think in the book I'm toggling mm-hmm. between these things. And part of the struggle for me was realizing I didn't, I wanted to be able to use my anger, feel like I could own it, but also not be owned by it. Sure. Yeah. It's a vehicle to something else. In other words, it's a vehicle to something else. And Mm -hmm. it's, and it can, it can sort of be outsized. And I didn't want to get lost in the sort of self-righteous, angry space where I wasn't actually able to move forward or set the thing down because I was ruminating so much and just mm-hmm. so pissed off. Yeah. And, and I was also drawn, though, at the same time to this line you wrote, betrayal is neat because, as you put it, betrayal absolves you of any blame. Um, talk about, you, you You go back and forth on this, the blame, how things went, where how you behaved and things like that. Because it sort of, if he's the betrayer, he gets all, he gets to carry all the burden of this. Um does that change how you feel, like, that you have a piece of it, um, which I thought you did, which was important in this book, is to not totally make him a villain. A villain. Oh, my he's, gosh, he's, no. he's, he's, He sounds villainous in a lot of ways, but at the same time, you, I thought you did that rather effectively. Yeah, I'm glad that came through. I, n- what I wouldn't want to write a finger-pointing book, nor would I want to read one. Um, Mm -hmm. That seems like it completely lacks nuance and is oversimplified in a way that's not literature. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, I really wanted to look at the way that, again, those little cracks, Mm -hmm. you know, if, if, if somebody creates a big crack, that doesn't mean that that was the thing, right? There's still a lot of other stuff. Right. And I think, and I, and I actually do sort of shift in the book early on in the writing Mm -hmm. of it. I'm thinking, well, maybe if that hadn't happened, things would have been fine. Mm-hmm. And then I get to a point, no spoilers, later when I realize, actually, no, no, this was going to be the way that it turned out, even if not all of these plot twists yeah. happened. I think we were... The narrative structure you impose on it, rising the action, narrative structure, crisis. Right. Yeah. I yeah. think it was going to have the same ending, even if the sort of like circuitous track it took to get mm-hmm. there right. was right. different. So, so... You ask if your kids will wonder why being their mom wasn't enough for you because you discuss that and then you realize that men don't struggle with guilt of wanting to be more than a dad, that they can have both the personal and the and the professional together. It's an old why women still can't have it all conundrum. How do you, how do you think about that? Because you raise the issue in the book itself. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason we have a phrase that is mom guilt and mm-hmm. dad guilt doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not a phrase. It's not part of our language. Um, if we have to give language to something, it's because it's um, sort of real and ongoing. Mm-hmm. And so just the expectation that so much of my identity should be wrapped up in being their parent, and that if I want to carve out something extra, something else for myself, that is seen as a sort of a front. Mm-hmm. Like, shouldn't this be enough? 
Mm-hmm. Why isn't this enough? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, um, it's it's sort of like, uh, again, a word, a phrase that's not used for men would be mm-hmm. something like, too big for your britches. Right. That's no a Midwestern phrase. No one says that, a totally Midwestern <laughs> phrase and something no one says about men. Right, right. Because right. men can't be too big for their britches. Right, right, right. right. Men can't have outsized expectations for themselves or yeah. their possibilities. That is, that is completely gendered. We'll be back in a minute. Support for On with Kara Sisher comes from Babbel. Our phones have gotten pretty good at translating speech on the fly. If you're traveling to a new country and you'd like to order a chicken sandwich with pickles, an app will probably see you through. But what if you want to chat with your server about the neighborhood or other dishes on the menu or your love of pickles? Real conversations with real people don't lend themselves to translation apps. Genuine connection requires a genuine grasp of the language, and that's something Babbel can offer. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app with lessons created by real people for real conversations. Babbel doesn't rely on artificial intelligence to build its 10-minute lessons. Instead, they're handcrafted by more than 200 language experts focused on teaching phrases and vocabulary you'll actually need to communicate. I really like it. I'm using Babbel, and I've been able to use it here in Argentina where I'm visiting my son, Louis. It's a really efficient way to learn a language. I do them very quick. It's 10 minutes. It's very user-friendly. Lots of pictures. I was never good at languages, and I'm really enjoying using the Babbel app. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, you can get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash swisher. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash swisher, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Swisher. And you know how to spell that. Rules and restrictions may apply. Support for the show comes from the Harvard Business Review. I made a career out of taking to task some of the tech industry's biggest players. And honestly, some of these guys, and they're all guys, really had no clue what they were doing, and they could probably have benefited from some of the resources available at Harvard Business Review. Harvard Business Review is a top source for smart management thinkers. Cultivated by some of the greatest minds in business, the Harvard Business Review is a trove of rigorous insight and best practices. It's more than just the flagship magazine, too. You can find the same level of expertise on hbr.org, and for just $10 a month, a subscription unlocks unlimited access to a variety of resources like hundreds of articles, podcasts, newsletters, case studies, and so much more. I use HBR all the time to look up all kinds of cases, and not just in tech, and also listen to their podcasts, I look at their newsletters, and I I really, 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 most of all, like the articles, which have a different perspective that I might have to give me ideas. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter the promo code CARA right now to get 10% off your subscription. Again, to save 10% off your HBR subscription, go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter the promo code CARA. One of the things you do talk about is this poem, uh, Good Bones. Um, even after the poem went viral, I was still hidden, cleverly disguised as one of the least visible creatures on earth, a middle-aged mother. The, the word invisible appears a lot in your book. Um, how, if you feel invisible, how do you imagine middle-aged mothers who don't go viral feel? Because that poem <laughs> certainly went viral. 
Well, but the funny thing was, is a lot of people didn't know. Mm-hmm. So I could just be pushing a stroller in my neighborhood, and it's not like you're Bono at Target. Mm-hmm. Right, like, right. That's true. It's, yeah. you know, being well-known as a poet mm-hmm. among poets. <laughs> it's like being famous in Pittsburgh, I guess. It's not a thing. So, yeah. no, it's, it's still very invisible. And to be quite honest, as an introvert, remaining invisible is a gift, Like, (laughs) I would not want to be fully visible Mm -hmm. um, in the world all the time. I would not want to have a face that people are like, oh, you're that person. I don't want that in the least bit. I would like to be a hermit writing poems. Um, But it's true. I mean, I think... It's there is a, it's, it can be kind of blissful to be able to move unseen through the world, sort of under everyone's radar. You said you felt ambivalent. What was the ambivalence that you happen to be an introvert? Um, you're well, a more gregarious introvert than most. I'm a gregarious introvert. Yes, yeah. I'm I'm good in in ones and twos. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, really, my ambivalence about the poem has to do well. Now people know some of the ambivalence about the poem, which is that my marriage kind of wasn't quite the same after the poem went viral. Why was that? I, because it it suddenly required or allowed me, it gave me opportunities to, to sort of lean in to my writing, you know, career mm-hmm. in a way that I hadn't been able to do that before. So until that point, I was pretty much writing poems at home and I would go out very rarely to give mm-hmm. a reading or go to a university, mm-hmm. but I was very available. And so suddenly if like reporters are calling and the BBC's on the phone and, you know, you have a it's speaker's being read agency on TV, yeah. and it's being read on TV, there's a level of visibility and also a demand for your time that is um, could be seen as being incongruent with mm-hmm. your you know, domestic responsibilities. Mm-hmm. So that was that was part of the ambivalence, was like, this was really good news for me as a writer, but it was really complicated news for me as a person living in this house. Mm-hmm. And then the other ambivalence was just the poem itself is a disaster barometer, <laughs> um, which I didn't know when writing it, that it would be the sort of bad <laughs> signal for bad yeah. things happening. But yeah. You know, I things wrote fall the, apart. I, I think things that's fall it. apart. Like Guess I, what? I didn't know, and so mm-hmm. I wrote this poem just like as a mom thinking about all the things I don't really want my little kids at the time mm-hmm. to know about the world, but also knowing that there's there's hope and that we can make it better. Right, right. Do you like the poem still? Do you like do. the poems? Oh yeah, I don't. I don't dislike the poem at all. It's just not. It's not like all one thing for me. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think when. Maybe from the outside, mm-hmm. someone has a poem go viral and they have more opportunities and people know who they are. Mm-hmm. And read poet. their other stuff. For yeah. a poet, For a right? poet, yeah. Um, it seems Everybody like, knows that poem. Everybody right. does well, know and, that poem. And it seems like good news. And mm-hmm. it seems like wholly good mm-hmm. news, like mm-hmm. unmitigated good news. Mm-hmm. And so there's the the sort of like trickiness of navigating the demands of my time at home. And then the other thing about the poem is it's a little tricky for me to have my readership grow every time something bad happens right, right. in the world. Like, I, right. I wish that it was a poem that was read when babies were born and people got married or retired. Actually, I think they're reading it because it's hopeful, too. I think that's why. Even if it's bad things, it's like also you want it to work. 
You can yeah. make it beautiful. I think I think it's about hopefulness. The part I see in that is your kids, right? I think you can't have kids without being hopeful, like about the future or about things that happen. You have to be really kind of demented if you have kids and are very depressed about the future in some ways, or it dements you. Um, but one of the the, lo- uh, the lines in one of your poems, I think, another poem, not good bones, is I'm desperate for you to love the world because I brought you here. I think about that a lot. Like you have to, it has to be a good place. Yeah. That's I've, the first. I've made you. I made you. I made I, you and I brought you here and you didn't ask to be brought here. That was the first poem. It's called First Fall. Um, and it's the first poem I wrote after becoming a parent. And it took me a year to mm-hmm. finally write another poem after having a child. Cause I thought, I don't know how to do this anymore. I mean, my life is now completely different. I don't know how to encapsulate this existential shift mm-hmm. in, you know, 16 to 18 lines, which is mm-hmm. sort of my sweet spot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, yeah, that that poem was the first one to arrive. And that was really the core feeling, which is this place has to work. Has to work. And not only that, it like actually it needs to deserve you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you also reference the hard parts in a lot of your poems with your kids that have your kids in them. In I think it's for my next trick. I think that's what it's called. Mm. Um, you wrote, we can't talk about birth without talking about death. Can't talk about death without talking about separation, that thick black uh, redaction. Do do I tell her we end like a book, the end? I love this poem because I my sons, I'm always talking about death with my sons. I'm like, my dad died when I was little. So I it's it's an important part of my life is thinking about death. And so uh, they're like, oh, mom, another death poem. But talk about writing that about your kid, about you're talking about your daughter, I assume. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that was a question. Mm -hmm. I think she was asking me when she was three or four, like, you know, and really sort of like drilling me, like, Mm -hmm. you're going to die first, right? Because Mm -hmm. you're older. Mm -hmm. And and what if I miss you? Kids ask the... yeah. Biggest, most existential questions, and I ne- I never know what to say, and so I write. <laughs> yeah, we had a friend of ours die, and when I, when my son, my oldest son, was I don't know four or five, maybe so in that time frame when they don't really understand death precisely, yeah. and I was with my ex wife, and he goes, "But you're not going to die," and I'm like, "Of course I will," and, and my ex wife was like, "I'm going to kill you now. Now I'm going to kill you," and I was like, "What? What? He has to know this," and she's like, "Not today. He doesn't. Yeah, maybe was, not right." But when you think about writing about your kids, um, I think a lot of people obviously have written about their kids. Um, And I I think myself, because I talk about my kids a lot on my shows and various, I write about them. They're in a lot of stuff I do publicly. And I do think about the performative nature of it and also that it's also genuine. It's a part of me. My second son calls me a sharent. Um, My older son has gone (laughs) off social media, uh, but they're in my work. And, you know, they're sort of used to it now. I feel badly now. And again, you do write about your kids a lot. I get a very big sense of your kids there. And I think I feel like I have some sense of who they are. Do you think about that a lot? Are you are you worried about them being like, mom, really? Yeah, I'm always thinking about that a lot. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. In poems, in prose, on social media, I'm thinking about it all the time. Um, boundaries in life and in writing, that's mm-hmm. sort of, that's not sort of important to me. It's really important to me. And so one of the sort of guidelines for me is I don't want to be giving too much of their interior lives or interior experiences mm-hmm. away. So a line of dialogue, a metaphor, a conversation, um, something that feels sort of not as intimate necessarily mm-hmm. feels more more okay to me. But I'm always kind of weighing these things like stones in my hands and mm-hmm. thinking, okay, is 
Is this okay? Do I feel okay with this? And they trust me. I mean, I've been doing this their whole lives. It's not right. new at all. Um, mm-hmm. They come to readings. They know what I do for for mm-hmm. my work. Um, and so so they, they know these things. And I don't mm-hmm. think it's... Um, necessarily unnerving to them at mm-hmm. this point. Um, right. I think about it a lot, I have to say. They're, they're, they're used to it, and I'm like, well, you shouldn't have had a mother who was a writer. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> what do they say? Whenever a writer is born into a family, that yeah. family is ruined? Yes, that's what I said. I actually said something to my mom the other day. She did something bad, and I go, I'm so excited for when you die, and I'll be writing all about it. She's like, you're excited I'm going to die? I'm like, no, I'm excited to write about it. So that, I, And she's like, you can't use me. And I'm like, oh, I oh, can. I will. But the public nature of your career, it's very different of how we think about poets, right? I know you're making jokes, nobody reads poets, but it's not true. Uh, there's there's much more. Talk about that idea of being being public and you thinking about it, because then you have all your Instagram. So talk about how you think about technology, because both books kind of started on Twitter in a lot of ways. Well, Keep Moving definitely started yeah. on Twitter. I didn't even know I was writing a book. I mean, I was literally writing myself these little missives each day just to function. Mm-hmm. And you should keep moving at the end. Keep moving was the, at the end of them. Mm-hmm. And and then after a while, everyone was like, so is this going to be a book? And I thought, mm-hmm. actually, maybe that mm-hmm. could work. I hadn't mm-hmm. thought about it in that way, but sure. And so that's, that's how it became a book. Mm-hmm. Um, poems don't generally happen on the internet, although I have had inspiration from poems happen on the internet a few mm-hmm. times. Um, and the memoir sort of lives completely outside of it, although some of the things I mention, like a, a, a tweet inspiring a song or Mm -hmm. when I found out that Meryl Streep was reading Mm -hmm. my poem at Lincoln Center was on Twitter. So, and some of that too, I think is I work from home in this Mm -hmm. office in central Ohio by myself all the time Mm -hmm. and my kids are at school. And so my lifeline really to the outside world, since people don't talk on the phone anymore, Mm -hmm. is, um, is my computer. And so a lot of how I'm keeping in touch with writer friends and how I'm reading new poems that that I find on social media. Does it change the way you create because you have all this incoming? You know, I don't know. I guess in some ways, if you think about like all of your, the sort of stimuli is sort of like that you're able to collage together, it probably does change the way I create. And yet, I mean, I don't even know how to type properly. So I still write longhand first. So I am like as as incredibly online as I live. I still work like a complete Luddite. Before we started this, we talk, we're talking about AI being a problem. I got Bard at Google to write a poem in the, I said, uh, write a poem in the style of Maggie Smith. And the poem, I'll read the first stanza, the future. The future is a mystery, a blank canvas, a blank page. We can fill it with anything we want, with hopes and dreams and love. This is a terrible poem. Um, <laughs> are, are you worried at all about no. being? <laughs> no, no. That, it's a, it, it is a terrible poem. Uh, I feel like at least my job is safe. Um, yeah. for the time being. Yeah, so, it'll get better. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not really concerned about it. I mean, So I want to finish up talking about where you are now. You wrote at the end, though, by the time these pages are printed, by the time you're reading this, may I be in a place of forgiveness. Are, are you there? Do you have to be? I don't have to be. Mm-hmm. I think I'm in a place of acceptance, mm-hmm. which texturally feels a little different. Okay. Right? Like, I, I think that. I'm in a place where I'm more at peace with the events that I write about in the book. I'm not spiraling over them. I'm not ruminating about them. I'm not lugging it around. Mm-hmm. And I honestly, I, I kind of credit 
not just the lived time, but the writing of the book for helping Mm -hmm. me to do that. It was almost like I had had this giant like piece of furniture Mm -hmm. blocking a doorway Mm -hmm. and I had to kind of shift it out of the way so I could walk through it. And so I'm, I'm at a place now where I can just be like, so that happened. So that happened. Yeah. It was not good. So my last thing is the last poem in your book. Called, uh, I think it's called Bride. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this line is fantastic. Darling, I say I've waited for you my whole life, um, which I you're talking about yourself. Um, I have always said, uh, if I could date myself, that would be the best thing ever, and marry myself. <laughs> um, have you realized that finally? Because that's a, that's a don't give a fuck poem. Like, I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. I think, you know, I belong to myself. Yeah. Like that belonging is the primary belonging mm-hmm. and any other kind of belonging is is extraneous, is extra by nature, right? Mm-hmm. So if I'm at peace in myself, I'm, I feel a sense of wholeness. I don't know that I'd want to marry myself. I can be, you know... <laughs> Pain in the ass. Yeah, a real pain in the ass. Like it, it yeah. might just be like two wolverines in a closet. I'm That's not, true. Or two introverts who no one ever speaks to to the other person ever. I'm, I'm not really sure. Yeah. But but being alone is fine. Yeah. Well, you're the last person you're going to talk to before you die. You know that you're the last person that you're going to have a little moment with. I'm okay with that. But but you do you feel it seems like you feel happy with this poem, although it's a it's a mixed poem. Yeah, it's a mixed poem, but I think again it lands in a place of both acceptance and embracing of the self. Like I think of this poem as a Valentine for the self, like a love poem to the self. This idea of like you lift the veil and oh, it's you. Like mm-hmm. you're the person I've been waiting for. Maybe you're the person you've been mm-hmm. waiting for. Maybe it's not someone else. Maybe, maybe actually you're good as is, and and that's okay. All right. On that fantastic note, we're going to end. This has been a delightful interview. Well, thanks for having me. I wonder how many men are still listening to this episode. (laughs) Stop it. Are you there, man? It's me, Naima. Next week, I'm sure I'll have a rich white man I kick in the teeth. I'm sure that'll happen. No, now that they're gone, we can talk about that. (laughs) Okay. All right. Um, by the way, Blakeney, who used to be a yoga teacher, had a, had a great description for it. She said, this is like the yoga retreat you didn't sign up for, but you feel good afterwards. That's correct. That's you feel correct. good afterwards. It struck me that whenever we talked about her husband, she was super careful mm-hmm. about him and caveating, well, this is my experience of his experience. And But in the book, and, and this happens when you write personal essay, in the book, you you kind of pour it out all out when yeah. you're writing and your editor and everyone's like, put it all out. Right. And then when you have to confront it in real life in 3D mm-hmm. and talk about it, it's very exposing. Yeah, I think I'm sure he's not happy about the book. I can't imagine. And I think she'll have she will have to contend with her kids later. I, mm. I was thinking that. There's a lot here that's not very positive about her husband. And right. even if he's a jackass, um, you have to make those decisions very carefully, mm. um, especially publicly. Um, you know, and like that. And I think she really went there with him. Um, and I think the kids will have a word or could have a word or two with her later. I always think about that. Is great art worth hurting people in your life? Well, that's what art is, right? Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, there's that Joan Didion quote, writers are always selling someone out. In this case, she really sold out her husband. She yeah. did. And I think there's an argument it, to make that it. he sold her out too. Sure, sure. This, but yeah. again, like he didn't know. Well, no, he was married to a writer, so too bad. He knew. Yeah. Which is what someone the other day who said to me, oh, whenever I date a journalist, 
I'm always really cautious. I'm like, what kind of creepy stuff do you do right. when you're not with a journalist? Right. Yeah. But I, I always try to be really careful trying to make the person as anonymous as possible. But they know who they are. Yeah. And people in your life know who they are. Yeah. And I think it's like having a, a zit on your face. Yeah. You think everybody knows. I, I trend not—I I talk on Pivot a lot about, you know, my kids and mm-hmm. Amanda and stuff like that. But I don't talk about the bad things, like, because I just don't—you just sort of leave them behind and move along. And I think in this case, you know, it was the backbone of the book. It was yeah. really the spine of the book. I also haven't written— bad stuff about people. Mm-hmm. I, I've written about like my own failures and what mm-hmm. I've learned, but not about yeah. other people as yeah. much. Because I'm not yeah. authoritative on that, actually. Mm-hmm. I don't know what yeah. happens. You never know what happens with two people. Even the two people don't well, know what happens. In this case, happens. you kind of do the postcard, right? Well, <laughs> <laughs> the postcard was kind of there. The postcard but gave it all away. Who knows what happened, now, really? The universal line in this book is, how did I get here? I love when she said that in the interview. She said, I was supposed to have this perfect life. Mm-hmm. How did I get here? Right. How did, this is not my beautiful life. Right. Um, you talked about how straight people have different expectations of marriage. Sure there was do. never an expectation you'd have a beautiful life. Right, right. Do you well, think that's still true uh, this many years in? Yes, I do. I still don't think, you know, everything is visually cued by movies and television. And, you know, even yeah. advertising is around happy marriages or, um, you know, I'm thinking of like yeah. 29 dresses, whatever, the one about the There were 27, Karen. Whatever, I don't know, whatever. I, Why do you got to make her a bridesmaid two or, more times? Or, you know, How to Marry a Man in 10 Days. Like, there's a lot, I like these movies. Yes. But every one of them has this, there is... But or, these are old movies. I think that yeah, the culture no, has shifted. Now it's Fleischman is in trouble and you yes. see so much unhappiness. Yes, and now I do. think looking from this side of the street... I think of marriage as an unhappy place because I'm constantly confronted oh, yeah, guess, with yeah. stories of unhappy married what was people. The marriage one with Adam Driver. The oh, it's called marriage. marriage story. Marriage story. With that was him a very and good story. Scarlett Johansson. That was a bad story. <laughs> I was literally. I was halfway through. I'm like, shut. That was up, like pre-divorce people. story. They should have called I it. I guess. I literally was like, shut up, straight people. You're driving me crazy. But um, look, there just wasn't any happy gay marriage. Now they're too happy. Of course, they're like all the gays get together at the end and laugh and have Neil a party. Patrick Harris. Yeah, and they all have a party and then. You know, it's fabulous, and a drag queen shows up, and everyone dances. It's just I, those don't that doesn't happen either. I just think that you you didn't grow up with the expectation, and yeah. therefore you're in a better place because not that you're not disappointed, but you don't have sort of fake versions of your life put in front of you, and so you feel like you're not meeting expectations. Yeah. Like I remember when I said told friends I was getting divorced, and we were married 15 years, and um, and someone called me and said. How unhappy were you? Mm. What percent? They said, what percent unhappy were you? And I was like, oh, you're getting a divorce. I see. Oh. You know? And she says, 43. Like, I was like, literally, (laughs) this is a tech person. And I was like, you really need to. Did she get divorced? Yes, of course. And she's very happy. (laughs) And she's very happy now. We're not selling divorce here. But that was also a very odd moment of the conversation to me when— it was, again, this kind of maybe more Western notion of marriage, but she started talking about these fractionalizations mm-hmm. of of kind of a more transactional yep. um, mm-hmm. view of marriage. But yet it makes sense because there is so much work to be yes. done. And yeah. I was talking recently with a friend of mine, Lindsay Krauss, about this. She's a recent mother, mm-hmm. journalist at the Times, and this idea of do you, should you have a kind of postpartum agreement when you have kids? Like you have a prenup agreement about who's going to do the work or a mm, prepartum agreement. How are you going to split up the work and how are yeah. you going to compensate for the time? Yep. 
It's it's a it is an issue. It's a big issue. Amanda does. I'm doing more and more because I was working on my book, but she does a lot of it, and I yeah. know it's exhausting, and I know it's super exhausting. But it's also always seen as a cost, and I, this is a flip on it. My sisters mm-hmm. and I say this about my father, which is, it wasn't a burden to take care of him. It was a privilege, and, and I think about that with kids too. Mm-hmm. There's something we see it as work and all negative, but actually yeah. the time you get the person who doesn't get to spend time with their kid, yeah, that's a huge cost. Yeah, I never saw it as like this morning. Yeah. I was like rolling around the bed with the kids. It was hysterical. I was like, this is great. I wish yeah. I could just do this. You don't like being here. <laughs> <laughs> Telling me I can't do a beautiful show about yoga. How sad for the world. Send you on a yoga retreat. You want to? I don't do yoga. Fuck yoga. Please. I, I was in Sayulina. You were sending me to some yoga retreat. You'd been I know to. of oh yoga things. How can you not know of yoga things when you're in San Francisco? Yoga things. But yes, I think that we're going to have a real evolution in marriage and a real evolution in what families look like and Could move be. towards a more communal model. And a lot of ways, gays have led the way in that. Yeah, gays have created. There's a lot of gay families like that where they share kids and things like that. And yeah. so. Timeshare yeah, kid. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. I think the straights really want to hold on to, like, look at, look at, go around the country right now. All these bands on different plays that show different families, mm-hmm. all these bands on song, like the Rainbow Song that Miley Cyrus and Dolly Parton sang. I mean, I think there's a real attempt by a small group of people, um, whether it's one or two people, like in Montana, it's run mm-hmm. by these three crazy people from one family, a lot of the politics, or the moms for liberty, who yeah. are just not for liberty. They're for taking other people's liberty. Um, and there's a, there's a real pushback of trying to hold on to that idea of this nuclear family that just is not going to exist anymore um, in the same way. And look, if they want to do it that way, they should do it that way. If they want to be egregiously unhappy their whole lives, that's fine. <laughs> So those are the choices. Um, by the way, the the, um, the text thing that you were talking about, I had that when I was in San Francisco and thinking about getting married. Mm-hmm. I was in a long-term relationship. And I would call friends and I would say, hey, I feel a little resigned to my life. Yeah. And I'm wondering if I should get married, if this yeah. is what you're supposed to feel like. Is this resignation what marriage is supposed to feel yeah. like? Half of my married friends yes. said, oh, yeah, that's it. That's yeah. the feeling. You know you should marry yeah. this person. Yeah. Oh, wow. And the other half were like, no, run. No, get out, run. I'd say run. I'd say run. Don't be resigned. You feel that at that moment? Maybe you can be resigned later. Um, or something, but not right away. What's a healthy period to be resigned in? A couple of years, at least. Okay, final piece of advice that you took from that or that you want to give. Oh, just be kinder than you think. I think when you're in marriage, I think it's really hard because you're whether you're tired or you feel like you're doing more or doing less, I think it, it, you have to keep that in mind. It's really hard because it's really tiring. And I think then in this case, I think they just grew apart, yeah. you know, and that that's okay. That's all right. Um, I, I certainly would never write a book about it, though. Good for you, Maggie, I got to say. Good for you. Good for you, Maggie. Glad it's a bestseller, but wow, ouch. Okay, well, we're going to spend some time apart, so why don't you read the credits and we'll get out of here. Okay, today's show was produced by Naima Raza, Blake Nishik, Christian Castro-Rossell, and Megan Burney. Special thanks to Kate Gallagher. Our engineers are Fernando Aruda and Rick Kwan, and our theme music is by Trackademics. If you're already following the show, you get to have it all. And if not, you get to have it all. Go wherever you listen to podcasts, search for On with Kara Swisher and hit follow. Thanks for listening to On with Kara Swisher from New York Magazine, the Vox Media Podcast Network, and us. We'll be back on Thursday with more.